Our sermon passage today is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Please read with me. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, I don't know about you, but when I have a task to do, it matters a lot how motivated I am. You might be what they call self-motivated. I'm what they call not self-motivated. Um, this is a topic we discuss in terms of physical fitness, right? How can I be motivated to get healthier and not eat that extra cookie that I did yesterday? Well, actually, like four or five of them. Um, we also discuss it in the workplace. How can you motivate someone to work harder? I remember one uh, episode, perhaps you do as well, uh, one episode of the popular TV show Parks and Recreation when two managers run a test on a lower level employee. One gives him a filing job and strikes fear into him lest he fail. And the other manager showers him with praise and affirmation. And so we are left to see which motivation worked better, fear or praise. I'll let you wait for that as well. I won't give you the answer. Both don't work. Well, in the passage Corey has just read for us, we see Paul urging the church at Ephesus, pastored by his young protege, Timothy, to pray. And he doesn't just leave it there. It's not just a command without a motivation. No, he gives Timothy, and by way, us, important motivations for prayer. So as we saw these past two weeks, Paul is warning Timothy about false teachers in the church at Ephesus. And now as he goes into the remainder of his letter, he's going to give Timothy instructions on how to order the church at Ephesus. He's told Timothy to hold fast to the true doctrine of the gospel, and now he's going to give practical counsel on how to lead the church of the gospel. So with our time together this morning, let's look at the first thing he gives instructions about, which is prayer. And specifically, as our two points this morning, let's see two motivations, two truths about who God is that ought to fuel our prayers. First, God desires all to be saved, so we should pray. God desires all to be saved, so we should pray. And second, God has provided a mediator, so we should pray. God has provided a mediator, so we should pray. First, God desires all to be saved. Look there in verse 1. Paul says, first of all. So that's not just first in the list. He's saying, this is the most important thing I want to share with you, church. You should prioritize prayer. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. He urges this, and I think that should be a comfort to us, brothers and sisters. Even the Apostle Paul knows that prayer isn't going to come naturally or automatically to us in our sin. And so he lays out these four areas of prayer. 
And we could try to slice and dice up these words and try to come up with some sort of principle from them, but more than likely, it seems Paul isn't trying to distinguish these things as much as he's attempting to add kind of heaping on, one by one, prayer as a whole and emphasize that for us. So we're to give ourselves to prayer, prayer that supplicates God for mercy, prayer that's offered on behalf of others, prayer that gives thanks to God. And who are we to pray for? Our family? Our church? Ought that to be the extent of our prayers? I mean, I think it often is for me. My prayers can tend to be quite nearsighted, often limited to the four walls of my home or the relatives in my family or the members of my church, all good things that we must pray for. But Paul specifically instructs the church here to pray for whom? All people. Not just some, not just for those sorts, not just for those you know, all people. Behind these eight verses that we're discussing this morning, or seven, we see a global, universal emphasis. Paul's not advocating for small, minimal prayers. Do you see how many times he uses that word all? We're to pray for all people, all who are in high positions. God desires all to be saved. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. God is not just the God of the Western world. He's not just America's God. He's the God of all. And so he urges Timothy and the church and us to pray for all people, not to limit our care and intercession to those who we feel a special connection with. Dear church, our prayers are to be broad. Our care is to extend beyond this county, this nation, and into the world. Our Savior has given us a commission that's great, not small, that's global, not nationalistic. So one commentator, Donald Guthrie, writes concerning this verse. The wider the subjects for prayer, the larger becomes the vision of the soul that prays. And as I was considering that this past week, I would was just asking the Lord, and I'd encourage you to beg the Lord along with me for a greater vision in our prayers. A vision that asks God not just to get glory in us, but even through us to get glory to the ends, ends of the world. He's a big enough God to do that. There in verse 2, Paul mentions a specific type of person to pray for, kings. He's talking about government authority. And in those days, this would have been the Roman emperor, and by extension, those he appointed to rule under him over certain provinces. And these rulers were not always friendly to Christians. You remember one of the most famous Roman emperors of the first century, Nero who famously used every sort of violent means to kill and exterminate the church. And yet, Paul says, pray for your leaders. Intercede for them. Even give thanks for them. In another letter to the Romans, Paul explains that governments have authority because God has given it to them. That none of us 
inherent to ourselves have any sort of authority or power, but we are given it by God to steward. And governments are no different. They are to steward God's authority, and so we must pray. We must pray that this authority is wielded in a way that honors God, like we did earlier in our prayer of petition. But there's another reason we're to pray for our government leaders. Look there in verse 2. Paul shows the purpose. He says, pray so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. All the introverts claim this as their life verse, right? <laughs> and on first, I, I never understood this, this verse. Because on first glance, this isn't necessarily what you expect Paul, of all people, to say. I mean, if anyone lead, led an a unpeaceful, not quiet, radical, uncomfortable life for Jesus, it was Paul. So, so why is he now advocating that we pray for the good life? Well, he's not done. He says, he goes on to say, we should pray so that we might lead a life that is godly and dignified in every way. See, what he's urging the Ephesian church to do is to not pray for some sort of lazy boy brand of Christianity, but to pray that their leaders would lead in such a way as to promote peace so that they can be free and able to live for God to live out their faith in obedience and godliness and proclamation of his gospel. You might remember in the first century, there was a period called the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace, when roads were built and the gospel spread and peace reigned. And God used that time to spread his gospel. And so along kind of those same lines, Paul is urging us to pray that governments would provide the ability for his word to spread. He's not saying that the word of God cannot spread where governments are unfriendly to Christianity. We've seen that to be abundantly true. But he's commanding us to pray that if it be God's will, our governments would allow us freedom to exercise godliness. So church, do you pray for your government leaders? I mean, we live in a country where political opinions are broadcasted widely and held deeply. Just look at Twitter or Facebook. And especially here in Loudoun County, uh, we live in a place where many work, if not for the government, in some sort of tandem with the government and have deep-seated views of which party is good, which candidate is good, which is bad. And those are things that are appropriate to discuss at times. But not here, because what we see here is that we must pray for whomever is in authority over us. So do you. Do you give thanks for God's provision of government? Do you pray for his blessing on our leaders? I wonder if some of you balk at praying for President Donald Trump. I wonder if others of you balked at praying for President Barack Obama. Do you see that, though? Regardless of who's in office, we are to pray. Pray that God would be at work to spread his gospel. Pray for their salvation. Pray for good through their rule. So church, 
I was sober to think about this with regards to my own life this past week, and so I might ask you as well, what might it look like for us as a church to pray for our government as much as we complain about it? What might it look like to pray for Donald Trump as much as we read news articles about him and post them online? As the church, we are to pray for our government, and that includes the church in North Korea. How much more ought we to pray? Paul says we're to pray for all people. It's interesting he points out government, but he says all people, and he says that's pleasing to God. Do you see that? Paul says regarding prayer, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And then he states a truth about God, the truth that we're going to use as the first point in our sermon this morning as a first motivation to pray. What is it? God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So here we see a specific truth about God that ought to drive us to pray. Pray for our leaders, pray for our world, pray for the mission of the gospel. All those things I think are in play here. And God, the truth is that God desires all people to be saved. Uh, There's some disagreement among biblical scholars about what this means, as you might guess. Uh, Some scholars like to interpret this as meaning God desires all sorts of people to pray. That is, people from every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity. And there's truth in that. And there's good merit to that interpretation. However, after studying it this past week, I think I err more on reading it like it says. He does want every person to be saved. However you interpret this, though, we can all agree that this passage makes it clear God has a great desire that the world come to him, the world be redeemed. That's that's his character. That's who he is. His message of salvation is inclusive. He's not prejudiced or partial. It's for all. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? In Ezekiel 18, We see God speaking to his people Israel and saying, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. Church, we must realize that the call of the gospel is for all. That's what our statement of faith says in the article entitled, The Freeness of Salvation. If you've gone through our new members class, you remember reading that. And in part, it says, we believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel. So the gospel is not exclusive in its audience. It's for everyone. It's for your neighbor, for your family member, for the Albanian Muslims in Macedonia we just prayed for. It's for all. But wait a minute. At this point, I wonder if you're thinking, specifically if you're a member of the church and you've been here for a lot of our teaching, maybe you're thinking, I I thought God chose those who would believe in him. We studied that in Ephesians a couple years ago, right? I mean, I thought we believed in God's sovereignty and salvation. Well, if you're thinking that, I'm happy, because that's exactly what we teach here. I'm glad it's gotten across. All throughout Scripture, we see, yes, God is sovereign over salvation, and he extends it to whomever he wishes, Ephesians 1. But that's not to mean the gospel is limited in the scope of its message. The gospel 
is not just for those who we think will believe it. The gospel is a universal, global message for all peoples from the universal, global God who created that very universe and globe and has sent his son to save the world from sin. So yes, the God of the gospel has elected his people to salvation. And in order to do so, he has sent out his message of redemption to all corners of the earth, to all people. So church, we must declare this gospel far and wide, here and there, to anyone who will listen. At times, this idea of election has caused folks to kind of sit on their hands with regards to spreading the gospel. Because if God's going to save them, he's going to do it in spite of me. But church, we must remember that this is our mission. And that he's actually going to save through us. You see Apostle Paul in Acts in the city of Corinth being despondent perhaps in his ministry and God saying, I have many in the city who are mine, therefore preach. There's nothing like the doctrine of election to spur us to evangelize because God desires people to be saved. But the question still remains. If God desires all people to be saved and yet many are not saved, how is he still God? I mean, if, if God wants all people to be saved, and it's clear, even from this very epistle, that not everyone is saved, then how is God really as powerful as he says he is? Or to put it on the other hand, if God is powerful, and yet not all are saved, then is he really as loving as he says he is? Which is it? Well, church, a helpful way for us to think about this is to see that in Scripture, God's will is considered in different lights. And two of those kind of different ways to think about God's will can be described as the difference between God's decreed will and God's declared will. God's decreed will and God's declared will. Think about it. God has desires that are always good. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. He isn't evil, and he can never create or design evil. And yet... God's will is sovereign over evil, right? He even uses sin and evil for his glory. We saw that all throughout our study in Exodus at the first part of this year. And we see all throughout Scripture, not just Exodus, that God is sovereign over sin. And that can give us great comfort. Never give up on that truth. But if all of that's true, how can God work his will through sin and yet not will sin? David Platt, in his commentary on this passage, shares a helpful illustration. Here's how he puts it. Let's assume for the sake of illustration, he says, that I'm going to lie to someone tomorrow. Question, is my lying to this person in the will of God? Well, no. Not in the sense of God's declared will. He has said clearly, do not lie, so I would be disobeying God's will. At the same time, my lie does not catch God by surprise. He's not going to say, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Everything I do is ultimately under the sovereignty of his decreed will. So in that sense, my lying is actually in his will. 
God is sovereign, even over the worst things in this world, though he himself never sins or does evil. Does your brain hurt? That's okay, because we're talking about God. And what matters when we're talking about God is what he's revealed about himself in his word. And from this text and the rest of Scripture, we know two things to be completely true. God is completely sovereign over who is saved, and God desires all to be saved. Completely true. God's love overflows for sinners and shows itself in a great desire to redeem even those he's elected for salvation. And so, church, this love of God, this desire of God towards all people ought to motivate us to pray. God has a mission to save, and he's recruited us for that mission. What mercy that he's decided to use even us in all our weakness and all our temptations and strife. But he has. He has chosen to use us and our prayers to save. So we must pray, pray for all people, that all might come to Christ, that all might be saved. God is pleased with those prayers, and he will use them to carry out his plan of redemption. Our prayers matter because of God's love and desire. Our prayers are powerful, and it can impact the world because God desires to save. So, brothers and sisters, do you desire what God desires? Do you have compassion on those around you? Our prayers are powerful when we pray for the salvation of others because we know that those prayers are in accordance with God's will. What greater motivation to pray than that? Well, there is one more motivation I want to get to in this text this morning. So, if God desires all to be saved, so we must pray. Secondly and finally, God has provided a mediator, so we should pray. Look there in verse 5. Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Do you see the, the striking contrast here? So, up until this point, we've been reading very universal, global, inclusive language, right? We've read language of, of all people and this kind of inclusive audience of the gospel. But now we see something entirely different. God desires all to be saved. God desires all to be saved. But there's only one God. And there's only one way to get to him. So church, our message is inclusive because it's for everyone, but it's exclusive in that it's the only message that's true. The word there, mediator, describes this person who goes between two parties to work out a deal. We use those terms in our business and legal circles today, right? Some of you are lawyers and may work mediations between certain companies or people or entities. Your job is as a go-between between for both parties, I was talking to one of our lawyers earlier this week, and he was saying sometimes they're even in different rooms, and you have to go to one room and hear what they say. It's like, it's like intense marriage counseling, you know? But if you're doing a good job, an agreement will be reached. The mediation has worked. 
Well, Paul here is talking about a mediator between two parties. And those parties are the holy God and the sinful world in worthy of his judgment. And between these two parties lies not just a hallway between rooms, but a chasm too wide to cross. In our sin, we've rebelled against God, and we have separated ourselves from him with no way to be reconciled. Our sin's too great for reconciliation, and his holiness is too severe for reconciliation. We deserve death. There's no hope. But as we sung earlier, our sin was great, but his mercy is more. In our sin, God sent a mediator, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came to take our sin on himself and bridge that chasm of our, sep- chasm of our separation from God. He took on himself all our sin, gave to us all his perfect righteousness so that if we will repent and believe, we're going to be saved. We'll be brought back into relationship with God. This message is for everyone, and it's the only message. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, it's a message for you. There is no hope anywhere else. And dear church, do you see the motivation here to pray? Do you see the extent to which God went to make it possible for us to pray? To give us access to him. He went, he sent his only son. Jesus accomplished successful mediation there in verse 6. How? By giving himself as a ransom for all. This Jesus, truly God and truly man, as we confessed earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism, is the only one who can bridge the gap between us and God. And he has. This mediator has put down his crown and entered into the mess of the mediation, taking on our sin, restoring us to God. And this wasn't a short-term job. Even now, Jesus acts as our mediator, interceding for us before God our Father, praying for us, advocating for us, and through that mediation, bringing accomplishment to God's plan to save sinners. Christian, is there any greater proof that God desires to save than when he sent his only son? Is there any greater motivation to pray than to see the cost it took to give us access to God? One of the greatest ransoms ever paid was in the year 1190, when England paid the Duke of Austria for the release of King Richard the Lionheart. Almost a thousand years ago, uh, Richard was released for a payment of 150,000 German marks, a payment historians say is equal to roughly $3.3 billion today. A number that's staggering. But church, nothing is as staggering as this ransom that Jesus has paid. Because on the cross, Jesus gave not all he had, not all he had saved away, not all he owned, but he gave himself. He gave 
up himself to free us from captivity to sin, to pay the ransom, to open up for us a way back to God. And when we pray for the salvation of all people, we pray through this mediator to a God who desires to save. You see how we're on the winning side here? What motivation to pray? Prayer is not merely a leap of faith, not merely a stab in the dark. Listen, prayer is our words mediated by our Savior to our merciful God. Prayer is his will, and somehow our prayers will accomplish his plan. So church, let's pray. Spurgeon famously called his church's prayer meeting the engine room of his church. Our prayers will drive our mission. Our prayers will drive our love for each other. Our prayers will drive our love for the lost. Our prayers will accomplish our joy. Our prayers will bring about God's glory. You know, we're often told as Christians that if we don't embrace our culture's beliefs, we'll end up on the wrong side of history. But church, a king is coming back, and his gospel is the only message of salvation. And what more motivation to pray than that those who are telling us those things now would believe in that message so they won't be the ones on the wrong side of history when that king returns. Church, let's pray. Let's pray big prayers. Not so that God would blow up our bank accounts. Not so that God would give us some sort of enormous success. But that God would get glory. Because that prayer is so much bigger. And let's pray because God has opened a way for us to pray. As we'll sing in a moment, Jesus' blood cries out for our forgiveness constantly. And so we must be bold to take advantage of that and come before our Father in prayer. We need to get up to arise as we'll sing, to shake off lies of guilt and sin like we sang earlier and before the throne of God above where we're wondering, can we come before God? I don't know. I'm too guilty. I'm too sinful. Lay those things aside. Remember the mediator and call one another to bold prayers for God's glory. Why don't we pray? If that's true, because we're not desperate enough, because we like to think we can control the little things in our lives, because we love to deaden our anxieties and stresses, the things that are God-given to drive us to prayer on things like entertainment and distraction, because we don't love sinners like Jesus has loved us. We could remain in guilt when we think about those things, but you know what you do when you feel guilt. You pray. John Stott wrote years ago, I sometimes wonder whether the comparatively slow progress towards peace and justice in the world and towards world evangelization is due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. So family, let's repent of our prayerlessness. So repent of busyness that makes us believe we don't have time to speak to God through the mediator. Let's ask God for big things, 
to save people like he saved us, to open blind eyes, to ransom captives. And let's remember that as we pray, Jesus is praying for us. I know I've mentioned this in sermons before, but I never get tired of the quote from the old Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, when he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Can you imagine hearing Jesus pray for you? You don't have to imagine, because he is. So church, let's unite our voices with his. Let's pray that his will be done. Let's pray that the gospel would go out and that God would get glory until Jesus comes back. Let's start by praying now. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now through the way you've opened through your son, our mediator. We pray, and his intercession on our behalf makes those prayers heard and pleasing to you. And so we come before you and we say, hear us on behalf of Christ for his sake. We pray specifically this morning for your gospel to go out through us into all the world to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we pray in confidence and boldness because you've given us true vision that that is going to take place. Give us boldness as those on the winning side. Give us hearts that care and love for the lost. Do this through us. We arise and come before you bold in prayer now through the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.